I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti. Today's episode is super special to me, and I'm so excited to get into it because we're talking about the album that really kind of kicked off my whole interest in rock and roll, which was Revolver. Uh, I started to become interested in the Beatles and rock and roll when I was probably, I don't know, 15 or 16, uh, but I didn't really know a lot about them. I had their Greatest Hits album on my iPod, uh, and I listened to maybe a couple Rolling Stone songs and Beatles songs. Uh, I don't know. I listened a lot to like Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones, I remember, and I liked Let It Be a lot. Uh, But I really didn't have any knowledge or understanding of how big and extensive and interesting the world of rock and roll was. But I was starting to play guitar. I had this old record player that I found at a flea market, so I kind of wanted to start collecting records. And that was kind of the beginning of what was drawing me towards this world. And it all kind of came to a head when my family took this vacation to Los Angeles. And I remember getting this copy of some music magazine. It ranked the top 100 albums of all time. It wasn't Rolling Stone. I don't remember what magazine it was, but I do remember that they ranked Revolver as the number one album of all time. So this magazine said Revolver was the best album of all time, the most important album. So I got it in my head that... Revolver is the best. I have to have Revolver. If I don't listen to Revolver, then I, you know, that's the perfect place to start. I need to hear that before I can move forward. So, like uh, the tourist that I was, I went to Amoeba Records on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, and I found a copy of Revolver. And I just looked at the album. I remember looking at it, and I knew that my standard of cool had changed so much. I, I thought, whatever this cool, trippy Beatles thing is. This is really what I want to be interested in from now on. When I got home, I figured out how to use my record player. And literally for like five weeks, I played Revolver like five times a day. Um, Just when I was doing my homework or when I was just hanging out in my room, it was always spinning. So if you haven't spent some quality time with Revolver, do yourself a favor and go on Spotify, find a record store, get the CD, and turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Revolver fans will get that reference. All right, let's get into it. Beatles Part 5. But before we do, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Follow us on Instagram, at Rock Bands Podcast, and share us on social media. Okay, Rock Bands Podcast, Beatles Part 5. The Beatles wrapped up 1965 with the release of Rubber Soul and a few concert dates. Rubber Soul was huge, it topped charts everywhere, and critics loved it. They were also the darlings in the media, and a hugely valuable source of British soft power. They'd been awarded MBE awards by the Queen of England, a prestigious civilian honor. In 1965, Britain was thrilled that they were exporting the Beatles, and the rest of the world loved importing them. Brian Epstein wanted them to do another film and soundtrack, as they had the past two years to keep going with this momentum but the band was finally fed up enough to tell him no, and they refused to shoot a movie or go on tour. Brian Epstein blocked off some time at the beginning of 1966 for the band to do all this, and since they refused, the four of them found themselves with a three-month period of free time, no Beatles business whatsoever, 
no performances, no TV appearances or government ceremonies. So they went their separate ways. They vacationed. They took time to themselves. During this time, in January of 1966, George married his girlfriend, Patty Boyd. They also used these three months of freedom to write a lot of music and explore new music and art that was exploding in London's swinging avant-garde art scene. George and John also used this time to experiment heavily with the use of LSD, and it became kind of a ritual for them. Gradually, there was a scene of people in London, members of the Beatles, Stones, other musicians, other artists, socialites, all getting together at their homes or nightclubs and using LSD. Psychedelic culture was really starting to blossom in early 1966. In April of 1966, after a three-month break, John, Paul, George, and Ringo convened at Abbey Road to begin recording their new album, with tons of new songs and a seemingly insatiable appetite for musical experimentation, they were ready to really record something special. The unorthodox and experimental nature of Rubber Soul had been so successful that the band really wanted to go all out and make their best music in 1966. John called Rubber Soul the pot album and Revolver the acid album, and LSD's influence on John's songwriting was evident from the first note he played for George Martin at the Revolver sessions. Literally, the first note. The first song they worked out for Revolver had only one chord, a C chord, the entire song with no changes, and it was called Tomorrow Never Knows. John sang it for George Martin and the other guys, and lyrically, it was so far out and clearly about drugs that it was pretty shocking to everybody. And they weren't really sure at first how commercial it was or even how good of an idea it was to put that on an album. By this point, George Martin understood that when the Beatles felt really strongly about a song idea, it was a good idea to let them develop it and to follow them down the rabbit hole. Besides, he really had a good time experimenting and enjoyed pushing the boundaries of pop music as well. Lyrically, Tomorrow Never Knows is a John song, but Paul was just as important to the development of the song. He'd been experimenting extensively with tape loops, a way of recording repetitive and odd sounds. The final product would actually end up being the last song on Revolver, and it featured tape loops that sounded like crows crowing, backwards lead guitar, and a fronty, droning drum sound. It was actually the first beat or kind of loop-driven song. The lyrics were a clear reference to LSD and inspired by the LSD advocate Timothy Leary and his book about the psychedelic experience. Now, I just want you to think about being a music fan in 1966, right? Virtually every pop song is about love, and even the ones that are getting to be a bit more experimental are still pretty innocent, simple, and fun songs. Then you listen to Revolver, which was already pretty out there, but the last song is making noises you've never heard, and not even necessarily pleasant noises, and John is singing things like, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Lay down all thoughts, surrender to the void. Love is all and love is everyone. Listen to the color of your dreams. That's a far cry from She Loves You, Yeah, 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 which had just appeared a couple years before. The backwards guitar on Tomorrow Never Knows was also a discovery made by the Beatles. John had taken home some tape from the sessions to listen to at home, and he accidentally hooked them up backwards in the tape uh, player. The result was him singing backwards on the song Rain. From this moment on, according to Jeff Emmerich, the head engineer for Revolver, the Beatles tried everything backwards. This would later be a huge inspiration for musicians like Jimi Hendrix. Rain is also notable 
because Ringo Starr felt that it was his best ever performance on the drums, and was a good example of how Ringo's really unusual, psychedelic drumming style heard all over Revolver and the following albums really started to develop. Ringo said about the song, quote, I think it's the best song out of all the records I've ever made. Rain blows me away. I know me and I know my playing, and then there's Rain, unquote. Rain was released as the B-side to Paul's Paperback Rider, which was a huge hit. Paperback Rider features great lead guitar part and bass part, both by Paul, and John and George singing that high harmony vocal. This is actually an area where George Martin was really pivotal. The producer wanted them to have a strong vocal presence, so he would spend hours with John, George, and Paul at the piano, just working out the harmony vocals. It really paid off on songs like Paperback Rider and the other Beatles songs down the road, which are some of the strongest harmony pop songs of all time. Also Paul's on Revolver was the dark, creepy, and sad Eleanor Rigby. It's a beautiful song about two lonely characters, Eleanor Rigby and Father Mackenzie. They live their lives alone with nobody to love. The song was originally an acoustic number, but George Martin arranged it to be played by a group of string musicians, which was, it was, I mean, it's a total masterpiece. uh, And lyrically, it's easily one of Paul's best songs on Revolver and, and throughout his whole career, really. Now, it's pretty scary too, because Paul says that the name Eleanor Rigby was a name that he came up with when he was visiting Jane Asher in Bristol. He really liked the name Eleanor because he liked the actress Eleanor Braun, and he was walking down a city street in Bristol when he saw a store called Rigby's. So he put Eleanor Rigby together and kind of pocketed it, bookmarked it for one of his songs. Come to find out, In the graveyard of the church where John and Paul first met in Walton way back in 1957, there's actually a woman there who's buried named Eleanor Rigby. She died in 1939. Now, Paul says he clearly remembers the origin of the name of the song, and he did not ever know that there was a woman there buried named Eleanor Rigby. He admits possibly it could be some unconscious or subconscious memory from when he was playing in the graveyard as a little kid, but he really does clearly remember the naming of Eleanor Rigby after the store in Bristol. So at the very least, it's a very creepy coincidence. Paul also wrote one of the most iconic Beatles songs for Revolver, Yellow Submarine. Yellow Submarine was written as a children's song for Ringo to sing, and the Beatles added a whole bunch of sound effects and absurdities to the song. In the recording sessions, they actually knew that this would be a really fun, lively song, so they invited a bunch of their friends and musical peers to the studio to sing backup vocals on the song. You can hear Patti Boyd, George Harrison's wife, members of the Rolling Stones like Brian Jones and Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger's girlfriend and singer Marianne Faithfull is on there, even George Martin, the regal professional producer was joining in on the fun that day and is one of the many voices singing We All Live in a Yellow Submarine in the chorus. Both Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine, released as double A-side singles, went to number one on the charts in 1966. George Harrison was given three slots for his songs on Revolver, which was a pretty big deal for him. His songs were getting better, and he was less insecure about taking so much time up in the studio working on them. 
George wrote the song Taxman as a protest of UK Prime Minister Harold Wilson's government, who taxed Britain's top earners, the Beatles, as much as 95%. The fuzzed-out and aggressive song was really good, and it was strong enough for George Martin to use it as Revolver's opening track, which is always reserved for one of the album's finest songs. During the Taxman sessions, George was having trouble working out a good guitar solo for the song, so George Martin decided to let Paul have a go at it, since Paul had a lot of ideas for how to play the solo. This was the first time that the Beatles fans would hear how good of a lead guitar player Paul McCartney was. George was happy with the final result, saying, quote, I was pleased to have him play that bit for me on Taxman. If you noticed, he does a little Indian bit on it for me, unquote. George had been fascinated for a while now with Indian music and Eastern sounds. He first plucked a sitar on the set of Help, and when the group went to California and hung out with the birds, David Crosby was playing a bunch of Indian licks on the guitar, so him and George started talking about Indian music. That's when David Crosby introduced George to the records of sitarist Ravi Shankar. George was hooked, and when he returned home from the U.S. tour, he went out and found a sitar, which from that point on, his sitar had, quote, taken over 100% of my musical life, unquote. It was the result of this obsession and the experimental nature of the Revolver sessions that George Harrison wrote and recorded his second song, Love You Too, for Revolver. The song is pretty far away from any Western-sounding pop song. It's a mixture of pop rock, I mean, George does have an acoustic and electric guitar part on it, and Indian classical music. George Martin arranged to bring in a tabla player, and George played the guitar as well as the sitar on the tune and he actually played the sitar kind of like a blues guitar. He was playing licks instead of more traditional Indian melodies. The song was pretty far out there and was a big step uh, in, in 1966. There were a lot of different, even foreign instruments being played on Revolver, which was a major trend in rock and roll at the time, ever since really Rubber Soul. Paul had a French horn player to play on his song For No One, and there were horn sections on Got to Get, to you, got to get you Into My Life, for example. Got to Get You Into My Life is a love song Paul dedicated to his new love of marijuana. I'm Only Sleeping is a John song through and through. It featured a couple backwards guitar solos, which was really a first at the time, and, and kind, of, kind of the clearest example and revolver of the backwards tracks. It took an eight-hour recording session just to do the backwards overdubs correctly. George had to play guitar solos that had no rhyme or reason when played forward, but sounded like actual sequence guitar solos backwards. It was a pretty frustrating task that day. It wasn't just the experiment experimentation and avant-garde style to their music that made Revolver so good, though. They were really together as a band during this period. Some of the most electric guitar, bass, and drum songs come from Revolver. Songs like Lennon's Dr. Robert, about a New York doctor who gave celebrities drugs, and And Your Bird Can Sing, which features that meandering guitar part played simultaneously by George and John, and an Olympian bass part by Paul. Other songs like Harrison's I Want to Tell You, McCartney's Here, There, and Everywhere, and Good Day Sunshine are too good not to mention. But my favorite Revolver song, which I feel really captures the Beatles' sound in the mid-60s, is She Said, She Said. Now, the song was inspired by the Beatles' acid trip in California with the members of The Birds and Peter Fonda, Ringo's first time tripping. They were all staying at a house in Beverly Hills, which was totally surrounded by fans, but they hired a bunch of security guards and they threw a party. 
Most of them were tripping on LSD, so the security guards and the screaming fans really creeped them out. So they eventually found themselves uh, in the bathroom, hanging out in the bathtub, passing around an acoustic guitar. The creepiness, though, was made worse by actor Peter Fonda repeatedly telling them that he knew what it was like to be dead, because he had, a, he had briefly died on the operating table when he was younger, apparently. Lennon remembered the incident later, quote, We didn't want to hear about that. We were on an acid trip, and the sun was shining, and the girls were dancing, and the whole thing was beautiful and 60s, and this guy, who I didn't really know, kept coming over, wearing shades, saying, I know what it's like to be dead. And we kept leaving him because he was so boring. It was scary. You know, when you're flying high and this guy keeps coming over whispering, I know what it's like to be dead, man, unquote. It bothered the guys so much that John actually asked Fonda to leave the house party. Leonard adapted this idea and fit it into the song, She Said, I Know What It's Like to Be Dead. The sessions for She Said, She Said were not easy, though. Nobody really knows why, but Paul and John got into such a huge fight that Paul actually left the recording studio leaving just Ringo, John, and George to finish the song. George played bass guitar for Paul and a piercing Indian-style lead guitar on the song. John played rhythm guitar and had that great vocal, and Ringo, of course, played drums. This song, along with Rain, was, in my opinion, one of Ringo's best moments on drums and George's best on the guitar. I mean, it really sounds like Revolver was... Uh, where Ringo became the legendary drummer that he is known as today. He just developed this psychedelic touch. His drumming was subtle yet explosive and erratic. It's a vibe that not a lot of drummers can manage to pull off, and Ringo would continue to add this essential feel through their next albums. Even though the band had this big blow-up with Paul during the recording of She Said, She Said, this was more of a case of brothers fighting than any serious problem. The band was really close during this period, they were still kind of the four-headed monster, and they traveled in packs. And they were all practically inseparable. Sure, there was some distance between Paul because he didn't do LSD with the others, but none of them really minded. Uh, they just wouldn't have Paul come over to the acid parties. This camaraderie also translated to their time in the studio. During the revolver sessions, they were arguably the most equal. For the part for the most part, they respected each other's contributions, followed each other down creative rabbit holes, and really encouraged experimentation and new sounds. The Beatles were really a team during this period, and they even started to work closer with George Martin. I mean, he really encouraged the experimentation. Uh, he was still very much in charge at this point, but he respected their ideas, and he wanted their musical ambitions realized. They would often be hanging out in the production room now, especially Paul, sort of overseeing the mixing and having a, more of an input into uh, the tracks and the album order and all that stuff. They also had a lot of fun in the studio. They were always messing around and getting into trouble with the studio staff. There's a take on Anthology 2 where John and Paul just can't stop laughing through the entire take of And Your Bird Can Sing. Now, I think... While obviously not every moment was like this, this is definitely indicative of the general vibe of the Revolver Sessions. Creative, exciting, fun, and really a happy moment for the band. Revolver was released in August of 1966. The cover art was drawn by their Hamburg friend Klaus Vormann, who drew black and white caricatures of the four Beatles around a psychedelic collage. Of course, Revolver was a worldwide number one, and critics at the time loved it. Revolver was the first real psychedelic rock album. And I want to be clear, the Beatles didn't necessarily invent psychedelic music. There were pockets of psych psychedelic scenes in mainly San Francisco and L.A., even New York and London. 
LSD was starting to be really hip all over Europe and America. Mainstream bands like the Beach Boys and the Stones had both released music that was informed by their experiences on LSD, but nobody did it as loudly and proudly as the Beatles did it on Revolver. Paul McCartney said of the album, quote, there are sounds on Revolver that nobody else had done yet. I mean, nobody, ever, unquote. I think most importantly, after Revolver, weird became the rule. Everyone started playing sitars and didgeridoos and adding sleigh bells to their music. There was a tidal wave of weirdness, experimentation, colorful clothing, backward stuff, lyrics that didn't make any sense that just meandered through the songs. I mean, I think the Beatles did it really well, but a lot of bands kind of just were psychedelic for the thrill of being psychedelic. And I think for a long time, this psychedelic revolution that we all know happened in 66, 67 was kind of on the peripheries. It was waiting to happen. And the Beatles were still kind of the gold standard of pop culture at this point. If the Beatles went somewhere, the music industry had to follow. So when they released Revolver, not only did the music industry follow, but a lot of the little girls who were screaming at them on the Ed Sullivan show were a little older and a little more interested in the new weird Beatles. Guys who thought the Beatles were just a boy band for their sisters heard songs like Tomorrow Never Knows and I'm Only Sleeping and wanted to know more. This is how the Beatles were both a product and a cause of the psychedelic revolution. They were involved in the scene and certainly influenced by it as it started to become more and more prevalent in the UK and the US, but Revolver was also responsible for breaking down the barrier between underground and mainstream. The Beatles led the charge on the psychedelic scene because their influence was so important. They made it cool to be weird. They took all these things that they were experiencing in the London scene and they put it up front on the front page for everybody all over the world to witness firsthand. The Beatles couldn't avoid their professional obligations for much longer. They had to suck it up and go do their world tour in the summer of 1966 on the back of Revolver's release. If they were getting sick of playing their old songs on the last tour, they could barely even stomach the idea of playing I'm Down and Long Tall Sally to a crowd that can't even hear them anymore. They barely rehearsed and it really showed. I mean, on their first show in Germany, they forgot how to play like three songs and had to huddle together to figure it out after a false start. Not that it mattered, because so few people could hear them anyways. They added some of their new material to, into their set lists, like Paperback Rider, uh, Nowhere Man, If I Needed Someone, and Day Tripper, but most of their Revolver songs were too complicated to really do them justice at a live show. Not many people would be talking about their music, though, because on this tour, the Beatles seemed to cause a huge controversy everywhere they went. It started in Tokyo, Japan, when the Beatles were billed to play Five Nights at the Budokan. There were tons of right-wing and conservative protests because the Budokan was considered by many in Japan to be a sacred place for only sumo wrestling. So the Beatles were greeted at the airport with signs telling them to go home, and a lot of people were insulted by the fact that the Beatles were playing at the sacred Budokan. Their next big controversy was much more serious. They were built to play at a show in Manila, the capital of the Philippines. Now, in 1966, the Philippines was definitely a stranger place uh, to be playing pop music. The country was ruled under a military dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos and was definitely a pawn in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union with heavy influence from Mao's China. But for some reason, somehow, Ferdinand Marcos and his wife 
were big fans of the Beatles, and the Beatles' visit was highly anticipated for Filipinos. Brian Epstein had declined an invitation from Marcos for the Beatles to meet the dictator and his wife and play a private show for the government, not really because it was some big stand against dictatorship, but the Beatles really just hated doing these big government uh, ceremonies, and they really rode Brian hard to make sure they no longer had to act as British diplomats whenever they went to a new country. Loyal fixer that Brian Epstein was, he always got the boys out of these situations. Epstein got another invite from Marcos to have the Beatles join his government for a private luncheon, but again, he declined. All of this without the Beatles' knowledge. Uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo were actually chilling in their hotel rooms the, night, the day before a show, smoking pot in a country where drugs were highly illegal and still are, when they saw on Filipino TV that they were expected at a big televised luncheon with the First Lady of the Philippines. They watched in horror as the cameras kept rolling, and they didn't show up. They were in their hotel rooms. How could they? And the next day, news all over the Philippines and all over the world was that the Beatles snubbed Ferdinand Marcos and his wife. It was a PR disaster, and Brian Epstein had to issue an apology and pick up the pieces. He went on Filipino television, Filipino radio. There were protests, and even when the Beatles got on a plane to leave the Philippines the next day, they were surrounded by an angry mob. Mal Evans was kicking and punching his way through to get the force to safety on the plane. When they finally boarded the plane, they were all thoroughly creeped out. I mean, this was one of the worst mob incidents that they had experienced, and they just couldn't wait to get out of the Philippines. But to make matters worse, the plane wasn't being cleared for takeoff, and it took hours for them to finally take off. It ended up that Brian had to pay a huge bribe so the Beatles could be cleared to leave Filipino airspace. He was willing to do this, though, knowing that the band was carrying large stashes of marijuana, and should the authorities decide to search the plane, it could cause some serious problems, much bigger than some bad press. While this was all happening, the band's biggest controversy was brewing. John Lennon was under fire in the United States for saying that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus, unquote. The comments surfaced in the United States in the summer of 1966, but he said them in a written interview in the British Evening Standard about four months earlier. In the interview, which was conducted by the Beatles' favorite and most trusted journalist, Maureen Cleave, John said, quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, Jesus or rock and roll. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me, unquote. Now, it's important to know that John's comments really had zero impact on the British public. No one seriously made any mention of these comments or found them offensive in Europe. I mean, to them, it was just a young person philosophizing like a young person does. The quote also needs context. I mean, British people think of Christianity as the Church of England. This is a major British institution in public life, and at the time, it was very much talked about in, in Britain how the Church of England was losing their grip over British society. I also don't really interpret this comment as John bragging or showboating about his success, or even comparing himself to Jesus. He was really kind of just making an observation about the craze of Beatlemania and, and the direction that young people were starting to go with their interests. This context was not at all granted in the U.S., which was a much more religious country, and they printed headlines, I mean, from the New York Times to local papers in Arkansas and Alabama, that John Lennon said, the Beagles, Beatles are bigger than Jesus. 
and people were furious. I mean, dozens of major radio stations from Tennessee, Alabama, and Florida, all the way to California and Massachusetts, publicly banned the Beatles from the airwaves. I mean, there was so much outrage. I mean, you can see footage of people, mainly in the South, burning piles and piles of Beatles records. The Beatles received an influx of death threats and even public condemnations from the Vatican and the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, the outcry was so fierce that Brian Epstein knew that John Lennon had to apologize. Even though the rest of the guys and the entire Beatles organization knew that John was really being treated unfairly and that his uh, words were taken out of context, they wanted to make sure the tour was safe. I mean, John was so distressed about the whole event that he apparently broke down in tears in front of Brian Epstein. They agreed that they should do a press conference to clear up the mess. When they arrived in the U.S., the Beatles appeared in front of the cameras, and John, clearly nervous, tried to explain himself. He said, quote, If you want me to apologize, if that will make you happy, then okay, I'm sorry. I suppose if I said, the television is bigger than Jesus, I would have gotten away with it. I'm sorry I opened my mouth. I'm not anti-God, I'm not anti-Christ or anti-religion. I was not knocking it. I was not saying that we were greater or better, unquote. Now, this is really not that helpful at the time. The Beatles were still kind of under this haze of controversy, and they were kind of now losing that image of America's sweethearts. And Revolver's quality was definitely overlooked in the United States because of the controversy. The Beatles' biggest fear, though, is that some of those death threats that they started to receive might actually pan out. I mean, they were terrified of being killed. They already thought that America had way too many guns for comfort, and the Kennedy assassination still really loomed large in their memories. And they didn't feel unsafe when they were playing in Europe or England, but they did when they were playing in the United States. John later said about the tour, quote, I thought they'd kill me because they take things so seriously here. I mean, they shoot you and then they realize it wasn't that important. So I didn't want to go. But Brian and Paul and the other Beatles persuaded me, unquote. The controversy, along with the realization that nobody could hear them, had an impact on their concert attendance. At every stadium played, there were unsold seats, which was a first. I mean, before the controversies, they could have sold out anything. Mainly, though, the Beatles were really concerned about their safety, and they were starting to get really afraid of the crowds. Sometimes the crowds would overpower the security, like in Manila. One time, a mob descended on the Beatles' limousine with all four members in it after the show, and hundreds of people were climbing on it, and the car couldn't move. They were completely overtaken by the mob, just sitting in that little limousine. At one of their last performances at Dodger Stadium in L.A., the crowd overtook the police line and rushed to the stage. George was shouting at the other guys, what's happening, as a wave of fans descended upon them. They ended up being rushed off the stage and shoved into armored trucks, sliding around with their instruments in the back of it. This moment in the back of that armored car is apparently when Paul, the last Beatle who wanted to keep touring, decided that things just were too crazy and it wasn't worth it, that they had to stop with the road shows. John, Paul, George, and Ringo knew before their last show at Candlestick Park in San Francisco in August of 1966 that it was their last live performance for the foreseeable future. They did like the road, they enjoyed the women and the mischief, and when they were on the road, it was like the four of them against the world. They also felt like they had been through something truly remarkable, which they had, Beatlemania. 
And it kind of was the end of an era. So it was definitely, there was a bittersweet feeling. They all brought cameras onto the stage, took pictures of the crowd, the stage, each other. And they had informed Brian of their decision a few days prior, and he took it pretty badly. So they were kind of sad about that. I mean, he was, after all, mainly responsible for the Beatles' public side. So if they weren't touring and George Martin was in charge of the music, what was Epstein's role supposed to be? The world had no idea that the Beatles wouldn't tour again. And Brian Epstein left their calendar open with hopes that in a few months they'd hop back on the road. But the Beatles themselves saw their future as uncertain, and they knew they weren't doing any more of the Beatlemania stuff. We know that they'd go on to make some of their best albums after 1966, like Sgt. Pepper and, uh, and the White Album. But at the time, they thought maybe it was all over. Apparently, after the show, George Harrison said, quote, That's it. I'm not a Beatle anymore, unquote. Their darling image in the media had been slashed by John's more popular than Jesus comment, and they were now subject to constant speculation in the U.S. press about their drug use and their influence on America's youth. They certainly had enough money to cash out and chalk Beatlemania up to a really fun experience. But we all know that they didn't do that. They just took a bit of a break after the tour. They had nothing going on for the next few months, no albums to record, no shows to play, just time. Time to themselves to pursue their own interests and think about their futures, maybe even their futures after the Beatles. Candlestick Park was the beginning of the end for the Beatles. After this, they went their separate ways for a bit, and when they came back, they found that something just wasn't the same. They were making amazing music, and they were having fun still, and they were still a great band in a great time period, but something deep inside them that connected them all during Beatlemania and during the making of their first few albums was missing. Thanks so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm really looking forward to the next kind of phase of the Beatles podcast. Uh, things really change after 1966. The band is not a touring band. They're a studio band, so... They start to spend hours and hours and hours in the studio. Uh, tensions flare. Egos start to, to show up. Drugs get worse. Some new characters come in. Some a little more infamous than others. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're looking forward to the next ones. Follow at Rock Band's Podcast on Instagram. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. And until next week, listen to The Beatles. 